For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. It is Wednesday, October 25th. I'll admit it feels a little weird doing an episode on all the problems at Marvel Studios because sometimes that gets a little overblown. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is still the highest grossing film franchise of all time. It's grossed almost $30 billion worldwide over 32 movies. Before Iron Man, success in movies meant you had a major hit, and then maybe you got a few sequels out of it, maybe a spin-off movie, eventually a remake. No more. I remember being in the Hollywood Reporter newsroom that Monday in early May 2008 after Iron Man shocked the town and opened to almost $100 million. The film editor at THR at the time had written a column about how Robert Downey Jr. was back. That was definitely true. But the bigger story was that this kind of massive success from a tiny comic book company that had literally been bankrupt would eventually unleash a whole change on the business of Hollywood. The genius of Marvel Studios, in the words of David Mizell, one of its founders, is that it's a, quote, branded studio that would allow every movie to be a sequel. That was a good business model, he said. Yes, definitely was, definitely is completely changed the business, especially after Disney bought Marvel in 2009, gave its creative leader, Kevin Feige, the resources he needed to turn Marvel into what it is today. But lately, the shine has come off the shield at Marvel, or at least compared to the Marvel that we've known. The Phase 4 movies have averaged lower box office, lower cinema scores, which measure what opening weekend moviegoers think, lower critic scores as well. The Eternals actually lost money, and there's been diminishing returns on some of the bigger franchises. Thor Love and Thunder made less than Ragnarok. Guardians of the Galaxy 3 made less than Guardians 2. Black Panther 2 made less than Black Panther. This spring, Ant-Man 3 made less than Ant-Man 2. You see the pattern. And now The Marvels is coming, November 10th, delayed from what was supposed to be a late summer release. And it's tracking to open way below the $150 opening of Captain Marvel back in 2019. And that's just on the film side. TV is arguably in a worse spot. Since Disney Plus launched WandaVision 2021, Marvel has ramped up its output, releasing nine different shows and intertwining them with the movies, with diminishing returns. Last week, The Hollywood Reporter reported that Daredevil, a show that was conceived pre-strike, is being completely redone after half the episodes have already been shot. And the executives are basically admitting that the Marvel approach to TV, treating it like film, essentially, where the director is in charge and they fix the problems in post, It hasn't been working. They're going to start hiring real TV showrunners, 
make TV shows. I know, crazy thought. So is this all just a function of too much output at Marvel? Or is something else going on? Today, we've got Joanna Robinson in here. She's a senior writer for The Ringer, hosts the Ringerverse pod. She wrote a new book about Marvel with Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Edwards called the MCU. It's very comprehensive. We're going to talk about the state of the MCU, some of the controversies, the crappy visual effects, how long Kevin Feige will stick around, and some of the executive turnover, and other issues that they're facing. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Joanna Robinson, who, in addition to being a senior writer for The Ringer, is also one of the hosts of the Ringerverse podcast, and she co-wrote a new book about Marvel, MCU. She wrote this with Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Edwards, and it's very comprehensive. Everything you'd ever want to know about Marvel. Uh, so welcome, Joanna. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was crazy. I was reading this thing, and it's like, oh, I didn't know you know the entire sordid financial history of Marvel. I knew it went into bankruptcy. I knew Ike Perlmutter got control of the company and, you know, he was in a battle with Carl Icahn and everything, but I didn't know some of the details uh, that you go into here about exactly how he did that. So very, very nice work. Thank you. And how dramatic it was, like, and how like Ike is faxing passages from the Torah or like they're running (laughs) through the streets or David Mazzell has to hold his breath basically in a in a conference room like all these yeah all these financial dealings and and definitely i had to give myself an education on a lot of financial matters in order to make it legible i think at the end of the day at some point we need to do a show where we just count down the top five greatest all-time assholes in hollywood history and ike's on the list for sure yes he uh he's is, up there yeah i don't know if he's number one but just the just asshole nature of this guy and the bottom line, penny pinching, calling Bob Iger at seven in the morning, inserting him, refusing to make Black Panther because he didn't think people would want to see black people in a superhero movie, like all time asshole stuff. It's so interesting. Also, if you read the book, Ike starts as a hero, right? Because he rescues Marvel from bankruptcy, essentially. So like he's an, he's a strange figure, but he's like a heroic figure for people who like Marvel Comics and don't want to see it sold off. And then becomes kind of, yeah, the villain of the story because he's so toy-minded, so so merch-minded and so regressive in some of his ideas of what kind of toys sell, sell that all of a sudden you're hearing like, who wants a Black Panther movie? Who wants any of these <laughs> women in these superhero movies? And it's just sort of like everyone, actually. So I know that was one of the great middle fingers from Bob Iger to Ike was the green lighting Black Panther Greenlighting yeah. Captain Marvel, yeah. having them both top a billion dollars at the box office and just sort of sidelining Ike and allowing Kevin Feige to report into Alan Horn at Disney rather than Ike. I think Ike is still pissed about that. He's now yes. orchestrating this whole cause with Nelson Peltz, the investor, to challenge Iger and kind of try to put a thumb in his eye. Uh, we'll see how that works out. But that's not what we're talking about today. I think we're we're talking about the path forward for Marvel, because it's pretty clearly hit a rough spot. We're not going to really debate the creative here. Like, this is not a podcast where we talk about which characters should or should not appear or fade into the background. There are a million pods that do that, including one that you're on, the Ringerverse. (laughs) But this is about the business of Marvel. Yeah. And how remarkable the success has been for almost 15 years now and the rough spot and how 
they can chart a path to get back on track, or even if they need to chart a new path. My question for you is based on that, is what we're seeing now an inevitable softening of the demand for these characters and these movies? Or did Marvel do something specific to screw up a good thing? I think you might have seen the studios that have been struggling to keep up, like Warner Brothers, etc. That might have dimmed no matter what, but what Marvel had going for it for a long time is that brand recognition where it almost didn't matter what the story was. If you saw the Marvel Studios logo in front of it, it meant some sort of guarantee of quality to you. And what happened in the streaming wars when the demand for content ramped up exponentially, when Kevin Feige gets what he finally wants, which is control over both film and television at Marvel, when Iger on his way out the door says, we're going to just flood Disney Plus with all of these Marvel shows, and then all of a sudden, the Marvel method, which is something that they honed and perfected over years in terms of making their films, now becomes something they're trying to scale up to meet the demands of Disney+. And what we find out to be true is that the Marvel method is not scalable on that level. They cannot put the pieces together the way that they used to with just a couple movies a year when now they're trying to spin the plates of all these TV shows on top of it. And so I think it has to do with like what you then get is diminishing returns. And so when fans show up for the next Marvel show, they see Marvel Studios logo in front of it. They're not getting the same level of quality that they got for years with the Marvel movies. I agree with you. I think that that's been the biggest problem they've had. And yeah, some of the chances they've taken in some of these movies and some of the characters they've launched with the phase four movies haven't resonated as much, but it really is a volume problem. Yeah. You know, when you've got the fire hose of Disney Plus shows coming at you all the time, it necessarily is going to feel less special. And I just wonder why Disney didn't see this. It all goes back to that investor day in yes. 2020 with Bob Chapek, where they just opened up the dam and said, everybody's getting a show. You like this character? Well, he's got a show. She's got a show. And, you know, these are professional intellectual property managers. Yeah. And they did not see, apparently, that if you give the audience too much cake, they're going to get fat and say, uh, a little less cake, please. It's a volume issue, but it's also like, if you're the master baker and you used to take all day making one beautiful cake and now you make 10 cakes of lesser quality, it's not just like too much cake. It's like the cake isn't as good as it once was. Yeah, I think they also got a little spoiled because there were a lot of people that questioned whether Marvel could do three movies a year. Yeah. And Feige showed that they could and that not only would it not dilute the brand, it actually seemed to enhance the brand. Right. And the Marvel movies seem to play almost like episodes of television shows, Correct. except those episodes would make a billion dollars. And they played on each other. And I think one of the reasons why Captain Marvel did a billion one is not because that movie was particularly impressive, but it was coming off the halo of Black Panther. Yeah, I like Captain Marvel, but I can't disagree that it didn't get a huge push coming off, as you say, the Halo Black Panther, but also in that like Infinity War Endgame sure. time where every single, like you, you get Ant-Man and the Wasp, that also gets a, a bump. You're in this like glory days of Marvel. So funny that you say that episodes of TV thing, because when I talk to all these people like the Russo brothers or Feige, I brought up that idea and they all roundly rejected it because they were like, no, we're making movies. We're not oh, making please. television. But I'm like, 
no, you're making television and you're making, and brilliantly, it's not a negative to say so. It's hilarious that the Russos would push back on that because they were literally directing episodes of Community yeah. when Feige they're, they're hired guys. them. Yeah. Yeah, they're TV guys. And then we've seen post-Marvel, they've sort of shit the bed a bunch of times in the movies they've done after these big Marvel movies. So it's not like they are, you know, auteurs that are descending into Marvel land. They were elevated significantly well, by that. And you can't blame them from coming off directing like the biggest movie in the world and feeling like, you know, like we can do anything. You can blame them for thinking that the biggest movie in the world is because of their auteurism. You can blame them. It is because they did a fantastic job at Marvel of setting up all of these characters for one yeah. gigantic endgame play. Okay, so the problem with Marvel TV also is that they treated these shows like they treated the movies. And I used to hear complaints about that all the time, pre-strike. Like, do you understand what Marvel is doing with these shows? Like, these writers are coming on and getting completely tossed after a year of working on this. The director is the king of the show. The writer has almost no say. It's the opposite of how most television series right. work. And then we saw this story in THR a couple of weeks ago where Marvel is essentially admitting that that has been a problem and they are trying now to, shocker, hire TV people to make TV at Marvel. And it, it's just shocking to me that it would take that long for them to recognize this. I think it was arrogant of them to think that they could just reinvent television without understanding how television works in the first place. And I admire so many people at Marvel and I think they are creatively brilliant. And I think this is just like one of their biggest blunders is to not see how fundamentally different the production of television is to the production of film. It is that weird handing off, that weird sidelining of the writers. And not only that, but the writers would tell me, like Malcolm Spellman told me for Falcon and Winter Soldier, he described it like this. You're in this long train and you're allowed to decorate your car in the train how you want to, but you're not allowed to know what's going on in the in the car in front of you or the car behind you. They keep these creatives in the dark about the larger plans of the MCU. If part of the Marvel process is keeping its creatives in the dark and keeping everything so secretive from each other, and then keeping them in the dark about how their own show is going to end. This is something that Jack Schaefer talked about, about how Amazing. WandaVision that final episode of WandaVision, they weren't allowed to figure out how to end their show until right up until the very end because Marvel itself didn't know quite exactly where it wanted to pivot off the end of that because they were in the process of working on Multiverse of Madness, which was Wanda's next chapter. And so they thought they could reinvent the wheel on television. I think it's fascinating that they are publicly admitting that they got that wrong because that's not Disney's way to ever. You know what, though, it's smart. It's, we all knew it. Was it was smart. Yeah. And we all knew it. They had to do a friendly story where they admitted their their problems. I mean, the Daredevil show, they shot half of that pre-strike and are basically going back into it and changing the whole thing. I People know. are going to find out about that. The deals are also terrible at Marvel. They're not going to get A-list TV creators if they don't pay for them. And they haven't, at least to this point, really paid for top TV creators to do it. There hasn't been a situation like what happened at HBO where Damon Lindelof got a hold of Watchmen and made right. a great show. Like that has not happened at Marvel. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. 
When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, so let's talk a little bit about some of the other issues going on at Marvel. This Victoria Alonso debacle, where you know one of the Marvel brain trusts yeah. Where she had been there for a very long time. From the beginning. Yes, they had really positioned her. And in many ways, she had positioned herself as a big voice at the company. She was in charge of most of the logistics, like managing the visual effects people and kind of dealing with the day to day there. They up and fired her. And they claimed it was because of a conflict of interest that she was producing another movie outside of Marvel, and they essentially told her she couldn't do that, and she did it anyways. Yeah. What was really going on there from your reporting? Here's my conclusion that I've drawn from my reporting, which involved talking to Disney, talking to people in Victoria's camp, talking to a ton of VFX people, because there's this whole narrative that came out at the time that you and I both agreed was not the whole story, which was this whole painting of Victoria Alonso is this like villain of Marvel who was this terrible taskmaster who was crushing like VFX artists under her boot. And I just don't think that is the full story by any stretch of the imagination. What is true is that Victoria was never a like really a comic book superhero person. Like her taste does run like more sort of uh, Oscar-esque fare. So I think what's true is that she enjoyed working for Marvel. She loved the challenge of it. But I think once you've done Endgame, it's sort of like, where do you go from there? Have you have you reached the height of some sort of accomplishment? And does your eyes start to wander elsewhere? From my reporting, I think they believed she thought she was bigger than the brand. And she was doing all the press and the public events and posturing and kind of positioned herself as the face of Marvel. And that's not cool. Not cool with Feige. Not cool with Disney. My reporting is a little different in that there was a certain degree that they wanted her front mm -hmm. and center because she is I like get a, that too. a queer woman of color and they wanted, you know, like there's a reason that she was giving a lot of interviews and Nate Moore was giving a lot of interviews. You know what I mean? Like that was part of their strategy. Nate Moore is, is black. Yes. But then when she took that opportunity and would go to like the GLAAD Awards and speak out against Disney and like what was going on in Florida when things got a bit political, mm -hmm. then they were like, well, we, we don't want you to have 
full license to say whatever you want. You're not staying on message, right? We want you out there, but you're not staying on message. So again, it's all in the mix there where it's just sort of like she's chafing politically. She's chafing creatively. Feige says to her, put your head down, do the work. That's not working for her. And so they basically did what managers all over the world do, which is like fire someone on, on, do they have her on a technicality, a breach of contract? They do. Like legally they do, but that's not why they fired yeah. her. Well, she know? hired Patty Glazer, the litigator, and yeah. you know, then it then it went quiet, meaning she yeah. got a settlement. All right. So what is the status of the Marvel VFX situation right now? Because so much was made of the awful effects in Ant-Man 3. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember in Do- even in Doctor Strange 2, yeah. I, which I saw, they were not great. And they've never been great. I mean, Jim Jim Cameron makes fun of the Marvel special effects all the time. But are they going to fix this? Victoria Alonso becomes this villain of that story because if you're a VFX artist grinding away, all you're hearing is that Victoria Alonso is making these unreasonable demands. And so that's true. But now they're unionizing. Exactly. Because the conditions are abhorrent. And like she has said... She used to call her department the Department of Yes. Whatever the director wants, we say yes and we figure it out. That's not a sustainable model. And especially (laughs) like, you know, Marvel for a time was hiring people who have no VFX experience, right? Mm -hmm. They're hiring like Taika Waititi or like what? Yeah, Fleck and Bowden, Taika Waititi, like all these people who are like, they're like, we'll take care of the VFX. And so I think it's a quantity thing. And this goes back to the other issue of like, do less and do it better. Yeah. And Feige is ultimately approving this stuff. I mean, how long do you think he wants to do this job? How long do you think Kevin will stay? I don't know, because for a time, I was wondering if he would want to take over Disney in the like ongoing Iger succession question. No, but absolutely not. Right. Because he's he wants to make movies like whatever he does. He wants to be directly have his hand in making movies. Yeah. I mean, I could see him taking over Lucasfilm. That's what I'm saying. Like he could take over Lucasfilm because he's more of a Star Wars guy than he is a comic book guy. So like if a vacancy opens up at Lucasfilm and they decide someone else could <laughs> not to suggest Marvel. that we, that, you know, we are, we want Kathy Kennedy to step down, cough, cough. Yes, we do. But if she does, I think that would make perfect sense for him to do that. If Kathy is tired of it and I couldn't blame her for that, then like that is something I think that Kevin would want to do. But other than that, I, I think he sticks with the empire that he builds. I do. You know, and they've got a lot of stuff coming up. They're really just absorbing the Fox properties and i've always said that this was the hidden gem in the fox transaction is getting kevin feige to be involved with deadpool x-men fantastic four and those potentially could be a shot in the arm for marvel what do you think there i think that we're never going to get back to the end game era and i think mm-hmm. that's just like that has more to do with the way in which we watch films uh, Not even if they bring back Downey and the other Avengers? I think that's something that, that they really want to do. And I think that's something they might do in something called Secret Wars that they have coming up. Uh, it seems like a no-brainer. The fans clearly like those characters more than the ones they've introduced lately. I think that Feige knows that Fantastic Four and X-Men are huge, huge potentialities for him. Because when you talk about that 2020 Investor Day when Feige and Kathy Kennedy come out and announce all these projects that they did not want to announce, that they were not ready to announce, that they were forced by Chapek and company to announce to calm down the investors. He's not announcing 
X-Men. He's not announcing Fantastic Four. He still hasn't. That's because he is taking his time and he knows how much is riding on getting those properties correct. You would think that with some of these properties, like a Fantastic Four X-Men, that if executed properly, they could reinvigorate. Reinvigorate, yes. I definitely think reinvigorate from where we are right now. I just don't think that reinvigoration process is going to take us all the way back to Endgame. So are you buying or selling Marvel stock right now? I'm buying because it's it's down, right? <laughs> well, Disney's down. But I'm just talking Marvel in general. The Marvel stock, I think, has fallen. It hasn't fallen off a cliff. But you, So you're buying. I'm buying right now because I do think they're rebound. Uh, this is not rock bottom. This is... Coming off of like Secret Invasion, which was a real miss for them. Quantumania, which is a real miss for them. Guardians did well for them. But like, I think that they're down bad right now. And I think that they will uh, come back up. I just don't think they're ever going to get like, yeah, again, Endgame Hive. I like to call this period the wobble. I think they're in a wobble. And I think they can write themselves. Yeah. I think I probably agree with you. The demise of Marvel, I think, has been misdiagnosed. It's still the biggest engine for they're success. still making a ton of money. Like a they ton are, of but money. these movies also cost a lot. Yeah. And that's the problem is that, you know, you got to get to five, six, seven hundred million dollars to even break even on these movies. And, you know, Eternals did not. So they've got to figure out how to reclaim the narrative. They need a new narrative here. Like also this Jonathan Majors thing is a yeah. big problem. Huge. I mean, he is the anchor villain for the next four or five years. And in this case, the trial is supposed to start next week in New York. I think if he is vindicated in the trial, then business as usual. They put out a statement. He says something apologetic, and then they continue on the path. If he is found guilty, then they have a huge problem. They're definitely in a wait and see period where they're both waiting and seeing on the trial and also waiting and seeing on public opinion. Like, I think the Loki season two response is somewhat indicative because he is a meaning big part indicative of that fans are not into it or indicative that it's going off without controversy that fans are not entirely into it and, and certainly critics aren't mm. into it like Do I you think something has changed in the way that people perceive jonathan majors even though he has not been found guilty of any crime absolutely i do honestly the solution is actually quite easy for them because we're in a multiverse sort of story so you could this is actually a quite an easy role to recast but oh um, you think so i talked to someone who deals with marvel who said it's going to be a huge problem if they can't use him. I think narratively they can get away with recasting that role in a way that they wow. couldn't before like the multiverse happened. I don't think that that's necessarily chief on their minds, but I think if you look at something like Ezra Miller and The Flash, Warner Brothers is banking on Ezra Miller's reputation not digging their movie, and that is not the only reason why that movie didn't do well, but it is a reason because you have not one, but two, and sometimes three Ezra Miller's on screen in almost every single shot of that movie. Well, they also, Warner's had no choice. I mean, that movie was shot, and they had to deal with the fallout after the movie was essentially done. I mean, here, at least Marvel can remove Jonathan Majors or recast like they did with Terrence Howard and and Don Cheadle in Iron Man. Well, it was that was a financial decision. Terrence Howard was commanding too much money, and Downey was also like, hey, uh, you made a mistake and didn't lock me into one salary after Iron Man, so I now desire much more money. So they cut yeah, Terrence Honestly, so they Downey, Downey has been the big winner of yeah. the MCU. I mean, the fact yeah. that they have to pay him whatever he wants for every one of these movies, mm -hmm. I mean, he deserves it. He was the original. But they have paid this guy hundreds of millions of dollars over the past 15 years. I mean, it is 
amazing. And they're probably going to pay him more to get him back because they need these original Avengers. I think they are coming to that realization. <laughs> I, I can't disagree with you. All right. We will see. Thank you very much, Joanna. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, have you watched No Hard Feelings on Netflix yet? No, I, I know it just went on Netflix. I'm really excited to watch it. Did not see it in theaters, but I will definitely be watching it soon. It is a hard R-rated Jennifer Lawrence comedy that did okay in theaters. Was not a huge international hit like they hoped and why they paid her 20 million bucks. But it is the perfect Netflix movie. And my prediction today is that I think it's going to be top five movies of the year for Netflix. And that brings up a topic that we haven't really talked about much on this show, but the value of the output deals that Netflix has. They have the pay one deal for Sony Pictures, which is the first pay service that Sony's movies go to, switched over from Stars, which they previously put their movies on, to Netflix a couple of years ago. And Netflix has gotten so much value out of this deal. Do you think there's an inevitable merging of Sony and Netflix? I mean, certainly, if it were ever for sale, Sony Pictures is obviously owned by Sony, the Japanese technology company. And if they ever wanted to get rid of the studio, I think Netflix would be a good buyer for that to take over that library. But these pay one deals have floated the Hollywood studios during the cable era. It's why, you know, you turn on FX and it's first run linear TV movies that are powering these networks. And now they're powering Netflix. Most people who subscribe to Netflix, they don't know that this movie is a Sony movie. They just know right. that it was in theaters. They saw commercials for it this summer. And now it's on Netflix. And that is so big for Netflix. It makes Netflix feel like a traditional studio, even though it's not. It's not making these movies. Most of these movies that Netflix is making are not big franchises. And with the Sony deal, they get Spider-Verse. They get Uncharted. They get all of these star-driven movies that are made for theaters. And then they go on Netflix 45, 60 days later, and they make Netflix feel like a first-run service. I know the movie No Hard Feelings had a mediocre opening, a decent opening, whatever you want to say. But do you think if this movie is huge on Netflix, like you predict, it's like the number one movie of the week, top five movie of the year, do you think that is enough to galvanize like uh, a movement in R-rated comedies with stars? Like, is success on Netflix enough for a studio to consider doing something again? Or does it need to be box office success? Well, the way that the pay one deals typically work is that the value assessed for each of the movies that the studio releases is based on how it does in theaters. So like, obviously, Spider-Man No Way Home is going to have a gigantic value placed on it because it grossed almost $2 billion in theaters. So is it after the performance in the box office, that is when Netflix and, and Sony negotiate how much no, 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 Netflix no, no. will license? No. It's a slate deal. So you get access to all of the movies that Sony puts out. Now, the value attributed to each of those movies is dependent on how it does in theaters. So whatever Netflix is paying for the right to air the movie, that is determined by box office. But all the Sony movies go to Netflix. And that's why a movie like this, like No Hard Feelings, which did okay in theaters, but the box office is not really reflective of how well it's going to do on Netflix, is a huge bargain. 
mean, you could put Jennifer Lawrence on the tile. It's a movie people have heard of. It's raunchy, hard R. She's naked in it. There's a lot of things that this movie has going for it that are going to make it gigantic on Netflix. And it's not necessarily reflected in the box office. So it's like the Suits phenomenon. Netflix made Suits a huge hit on Netflix. But NBC Universal, which licensed Suits to Netflix, did not really expect it to be this big. So they didn't get the full value in that license deal. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Joanna Robinson, producer Craig Holbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez, and I want to thank you. We'll see you later this week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.